Good morning, everyone. Okay, something you need to know about me. Um, I cut my teeth preaching in uh, African American church. Then a little bit after that, uh, when we were overseas, I pastored a church that was predominantly African. So I need feedback. I just will not feel at home here at all if I say good morning and I hear a couple of mumbles of good morning. So good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Couple more things that I want uh, just to help us feel more at home together here today. Uh, for one thing, I know that we have some, some secret ameners in here, people that like to say amen, but you just don't feel like this is the atmosphere for it. If you hear something you agree with today, and I, I hope you will, please let me know about it. I, I really need that. One more thing that I'm going to ask you to humor me with. Uh, in my church in, in Belarus, the, the one that was predominantly African, my Nigerian friends taught me something that I just love, and I want to share it with you. It's a little call and response from the, the person speaking at the front of the service to the congregation, okay? The person speaking will say, praise the Lord, and put up a hand. The congregation will answer by saying, Hallelujah, and they say it like they mean it, okay? Putting up a hand. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. So I say praise the Lord. You just say it in Hebrew, right? So let's give it a try. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Wonderful. I, I think I'm going to have to share a link of this with my church back in Belarus. They will be so honored that you're participating with us in this. Now, uh, as we continue on, as I speak this morning, if I happen to throw in a praise the Lord, you know what to do. That'll show me that you're listening, that we're still together on this, right? So one more time, praise the Lord. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate the opportunity that the elders have given me this morning to share the word of God with you. Uh, it is indeed a privilege to be behind this pulpit. Uh, I know that, like me, you are probably waiting for Brett to get back into the, the book of John and to hear those wonderful expositions. Um, but thank you for humoring me for the next two weeks. I'm happy to, to share the word with you. Well, over the past couple of weeks, I've been wrapping up my year, uh, year read through the Bible plan. And it's kind of a tough plan because it ends with the end of the nation of Israel. It's just a heavy reading at the end of the year. And so over and over again, I've faced sin and judgment. And, and it seems like, as I look at it, that the entire Old Testament is just this continuous cycle. Let me see if I can sum it up in a couple of words. So, in a time of relative peace and prosperity and calm, God's people turn their backs on God to chase after even more peace and prosperity and well-being. And they chase after these things through the worship of other gods or, or through oppressing even their own people or any other means that are available. And so God, God 
is gracious and sends his prophets to the people and he says, stop, you're on a dangerous path. Well, the people don't stop. So God comes again with the prophets and he says, you are going to be judged. The people don't stop. And so God brings judgment. Again and again we see this. Foreign armies invade and there's oppression in the land. Or disease comes. Or famine. Or something else. And the people finally cry out to God for deliverance. And God is gracious. And he delivers them from this judgment. So they are restored to comfort and peace and prosperity, which leads them to do the exact same things over and over again. The cycle just repeats itself over and over. And you, you read through this and you just want to scream, stop it. Guys, don't you know where this is heading? But they don't. They can't stop. They don't want to stop because their actions reveal where their hearts truly lie. Their actions reveal what they value and what they treasure. And it's not God. No, they value the gifts and not the giver. Boy, it's a good thing that we don't see that happen in our own lives, right? Doesn't this cycle sound familiar to you? We find ourselves tripping up over and over again over the same old sins, running back to our same old idols. So what's, what's the hope? Where is the escape in all of this? Well, the passage that we're going to look at today falls neatly into this cycle of sin and judgment, repentance and deliverance. We're going to read today from Isaiah chapter 9. I meant to look and see the page number in the Pew Bible, but I forgot. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read from verses 1 through 7. Could somebody tell me what page that's on in the Pew Bible? 573, yeah? Okay. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the stage a little bit. At this point in the book of Isaiah, really starting with chapter 7, the nation of Judah finds itself in a very precarious position. It is already weakened, but then to, just to the north, the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria have ganged together. They formed an alliance and are now threatening to come in and destroy Jerusalem even. Now King Ahaz is frightened. But God comes to him through the prophet Isaiah and says, don't worry, I will deliver you. Don't worry, I will be your salvation. Instead, Ahaz turns to the rising superpower in the region, Assyria. God warns him and says, do not go to the Assyrians for protection. But Ahaz won't listen. No, because... All he cares about is deliverance. And he doesn't care where it comes from as long as there is certain safety. Well, so at the end of chapter 8, God has promised to the nation of Judah, you will be plunged into darkness. There will be gloom and judgment. 
And that is where we pick up. The judgment hasn't started yet, but God has promised. Read with me, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, uh, battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So as we begin here, I want us to start by marveling at the compassion and the gracious forgiveness of our God. Remember, he has promised Judgment will come. Gloom and darkness will come. But it still hasn't hit them. And yet, even before the judgment has come, God is promising forgiveness. He's promising deliverance. The people haven't felt the need to repent yet. And God is already preparing to save them. Look at this, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he, that's God, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. This judgment that is coming, it is the work of God's hand. The Assyrian armies that will rage through these northern lands, then the conquering Babylonians that will come, this is all God's doing but so is the salvation that is to come. Even before the people are ready to repent, he is promising, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. My friends, this already is good news for God's people this morning. Amen? God is ready to forgive before you are ready to repent. And even here, God is readying this great salvation to a people who still have their backs turned toward him. In salvation, it is God that is the initiator. And that is good news because you 
and me on our own, we would never turn. We would never be the ones to take that first step towards God. Oh, praise the Lord. That was a test for you right there. God is gracious and compassionate even to stubborn people who are happy to walk in darkness. Now, as we continue, we see in the following verses great contrasts as God promises to take the judgment that was coming upon the people and turn it into his blessing. So in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Darkness in the Old Testament, this gloom, this, this utter um, darkness, for lack of a better word, this is always a sign of God's wrath poured out upon a land. Think back to Egypt and to the plagues that came. In Egypt, in, uh, Exodus chapter 10, chapter 14, we've got the land of Egypt plunged into great darkness as God's wrath drops upon them. But darkness is also a sign of the ignorance of the people. As they're suffering under God's wrath, God's people are, are blind even to the, the fact that this is punishment for the evils that they have committed. This blind ignorance where they can't tell wrong from right, where they can't tell treasure, God, from trash, their idols. But God promises that in this time, light will shine where there was great darkness. God will remove his wrath and he will remove man's blindness. So the first thing we need to see in this salvation that God promises God will take away his wrath and he will take away man's blindness. Now, verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Now, through the wars that would come, through famine, through disease, through intermarriage, the nation of Israel, God's people, would dwindle down to a very small faithful remnant. And especially in those days, a small nation is a weak nation. There wouldn't be enough hands to work the fields to prosper economically. There wouldn't be enough warriors to defend the nation and make it strong militarily. But God promises, in the days to come, the nation will be multiplied. It will grow again. And I will give you great joy, he says. Joy as, as in at the harvest time. Some of the greatest celebrations in the ancient world were when they gathered in the crops and celebrated how God had provided for them through yet another year. But also, they're glad as when they divide the spoil. This is the picture of a great military victory. The people are celebrating because they have triumphed over their enemies and now they get to divide the great plunder that they have taken from their enemies. So God promises here, I will multiply the nation. I will make you great again. And I will give you great joy, joy of various kinds, joy abounding. Okay, verse number four. 
the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. The yoke of his burden, the picture here is that the people are made to work in slavery like, like oxen, like horses, like some beasts of burden. They would be weighted down with work that they didn't love and didn't want. The, the staff for the shoulder, this is an instrument that was used to force that labor upon them. And the rod for their back, this is the rod of punishment. The lashes that they would be given for not working hard enough or not being able to meet up to the quotas. But God promises this oppression will be shattered. It will be utterly broken as in the day of Midian. The day of Midian, of course, is a reference to Judges chapters 6 through 8. Gideon's deliverance of God's people. And that time God delivered his people during the midst of yet another cycle of sin and judgment and deliverance. Delivered them through Gideon and a handful of other people and some clay pots and, and trumpets and, and candles. So here God promises that in a similarly miraculous way, he is going to deliver his people from oppression. God's salvation includes deliverance. Finally, in verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. War will cease. All of these articles of clothing that came from fallen soldiers will be gathered together and burned in a great fire. Yes, God will bring peace to his people. So we see God promises to take his judgment and to turn it into blessing. Before he has even started the judgment, God will initiate this salvation. But the question arises, how are you going to do this, God? But even more importantly, how is this any different than everything that has come before? God has saved his people numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again, they sin, he judges, they repent, and then they go right back to their sinning. What makes this any different? Well, the answer starts in verse 6. I think that we've become too accustomed to these words to recognize the foolishness of what is written here. <laughs> okay, so there's going to be a great judgment. A foreign nation is going to come and oppress. Assyria and Babylon and others. What's your solution, God? Well, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Oh, great, a baby is going to come and save us? A baby is going to come and crush the conquering foes? Now, I know that God loves to deliver his people in, in strange ways, ways that give him the glory. But what's a child going to do? Even more so, we read, the government shall be upon his shoulders. It's a child king. Now, students of the Old Testament will know that there were a couple of great child kings in Judah. There was Joash, 
who became king at age eight, Josiah at nine. And both of them were good kings. They did great things for the nation. But then they died. And some of the darkest days in all of Judah came right after they left the throne. What good does that do? Oh, but my friends, here is where the good news for us begins. What comes after these words tells us that God has in mind not just another deliverance, like he's always delivered his people. And this king that is going to arise, he's not just a child king. He's the king of kings. He's not just another lord to rule over them. He is the lord of lords. He's not just going to bring light. He will be the light of the world. Look at what he says about this king who is to come. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. This doesn't just mean that he's really good at giving advice. This word wonderful is the closest thing that the Hebrew has to supernatural. So the contrast here is with the foolish king Ahaz, who sought after all of man's best wisdom. No, this king is going to rule with the wisdom of God. He is going to lead us in supernatural paths, paths that may not make any sense to us, and yet are the wisdom of God himself. He will be called Mighty God. Mighty. Oh, Ahaz had to rely upon the deliverance of Assyria to free his nation. But this king that is coming, he has the power not just to defeat nations, but to control events and to change hearts because he is God in the flesh. He is the Almighty. Yes, this coming king is God. What a wonderful thought that God would not just send a king to his people. God will become the king for his people. Everlasting Father, don't be confused here. This is not a Trinitarian statement. Isaiah is not saying that the Father will take on flesh and become Jesus. No. Father is what, uh, the, the way that people in those times would refer to their political and their spiritual leaders. A king was a father to his nation because he was to protect and nurture and provide for the people as any good father would provide for his children. Just so this king that is coming will provide for his people. He will protect them, wrap them in his fatherly arms. What is more, he is everlasting. King David was a good father for a time to his people, but then he started to get old. He started to let things go, and then he died. This king will never die. Finally, he will be called Prince of Peace. Now, peace, we usually think of as the absence of war, absence of conflict. And that's certainly in view here. But the Hebrew word shalom has a much wider meaning to it. It is well-being. It is harmony with other people. It's peace with God. This, this is everything that God's people have ever been chasing after. 
And wherever this king sets his feet, peace will reign. Shalom, well-being, and peace with Almighty God. So who could this be, right? We have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian history. Looking back upon this, we see that Galilee of the Gentiles will see a great light. We see Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and we know this is Jesus. Redeemer Church, behold your God. The child king seated upon the throne. Adore this one. God did not just send a deliverer. God did not just stay up in heaven and deliver through some other nation. No. He himself came. He himself became our king. That he might free us. And yes, we can now say us, because the judgment that is in view here is not just the judgment of Judah. It's the judgment that each and every one of us faces. The oppression that is in mind is not just the oppression of conquering kings. No, no, this is the oppression of sin that drags us not only to, to work in places we don't want to work, it drags us to work for sin down into the very pits of hell. The gloom, the darkness that we see, this is the darkness of God's wrath that is upon us for the ways in which we don't treasure God, the ways in which we chase after our own idols. Yes, God has come in the flesh. And now, instead of this darkness, instead of this oppression, we have the light of God's face shining upon us in Jesus Christ. Now, that should be worth an amen or two. Thank you. Because you see, there will be no anguish for us because when Jesus came, he took our anguish upon himself on the cross. There will be no more darkness for you and me because on that cross, the land was plunged into darkness. God's wrath fell upon Jesus so it doesn't have to fall upon you. No longer will there be warfare between us and God. No, there can be peace because Jesus became God's enemy. He will multiply the nation. And look at us. Look at us here. God has multiplied. We are not the small, faithful remnant of Israel. No, now we are a part of every tribe and tongue and nation. We will stand before the throne of God and worship with a multitude that no one can count people from nations that we've never even heard of. Oh, and joy. He will give us joy unspeakable. Even now we have that foretaste. Behold our God, Jesus, God in the flesh, who has taken upon himself our judgment that we may walk in the shalom of God. Oh, I think we just 
need to marvel at that for a moment. That God would be so good to us. And in seeing this problem, I think now we see, I'm sorry, in seeing this solution, now we see where the problem actually lies. You see, from, from Genesis 3 and that first sin on, the main problem that we've all faced is that we think we need to recover the blessings of Eden. We look back to the garden and we see the abundant food, the peace, we see eternal life, and we think, this is what I need. You hear this in, in a lot of preaching these days, preaching that you can receive these benefits from God. But my friends, Eden was not paradise because there was food and peace and warmth and shelter and you name it. Eden was paradise because God was there. What is it that makes heaven into heaven but the presence of God? You could have all of the benefits of Eden. You could have all of the money in the world, perfect health, everlasting life. But if God is not with you, that is hell, my friends. What we need is not to recover the blessings of Eden. We need God with us. That is what our hearts have been striving for since Genesis 3. That is what will truly satisfy. And that is what breaks the cycle that holds us in sin. And well, in Christ, we don't have judgment, do we? But discipline and coming back in repentance. Do you want to break free from sin in your life? Treasure God. Treasure Christ. What we need more than anything else is God with us. And in Jesus, we have that. God is always with us if we have faith in Christ. Now the danger is that we take it for granted. I see this with my children. Uh, this past week, I've, I've been working a, a job that I don't normally work and have been gone much longer hours. And I come home, and if they're playing out on the street or whatever, they come running up to me, Papa's back, Papa's back. They throw their arms around me. It's, it's just like Norman Rockwell. It's beautiful. <laughs> but if I'm there all day, eh. Papa's here. I fear that that is what the presence of God always with us, God with us, has become for us. How many times can we hear and sing Emmanuel and just have it be an empty word that passes through our lips, off our tongues? Wonder of wonders, God has chosen to be with you. Knowing you, your sins, knowing the ways in which you have not treasured him and treasured only his gifts, he has chosen to be with you. I was very convicted as I thought through this this week. 
because I remember times in my, my Christian life where I was much more full of the wonder of God with us than I am now. I was saved out of very deep rebellion. I won't catalog my list of sins, but it was deep. <laughs> and when I found myself accepted by God in Jesus Christ, I couldn't believe it. A blasphemer like me, and God would accept me, and he would want to be with me. There, there were times when I would lie awake at night with that tingling feeling in your, your hands. I, I would wake up in the morning just raring to get into the Bible and, and read and pray and be with God in sweet communion. I remember one time in particular that the snow brought it back. My friends and I were coming back at college from a, a midwinter's basketball game. It was about 15 degrees. I was in Iowa, walking through this snow-covered field, and I had on a heavy jacket and basketball shorts, sweating still, sweat freezing on me. And we were walking back, and we looked up, and we see this beautiful winter night sky. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit dropped or, or what happened, but we were just full of the wonder of God with us. And we stood there for the next hour and a half in this field, looking like idiots, singing the top of our lungs, every praise song that we knew. Thankfully, we were all pretty new Christians. We didn't know a lot of songs. But we were still there singing and praying for an hour and a half. And you know, it says that Jesus fasted for 40 days and after that he felt hungry. Well, we were singing for an hour and a half and after that I felt cold, you know. The whole time, there was nowhere else that I wanted to be. I wanted to know God. I wanted Christ in my life. I wanted to enjoy his presence more than anything else. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't perfect. I was foolish in a lot of ways. My theology was all wrong. And yet, oh, to recover that heart. Now I find myself thinking through, oh, things are going to be so much better if only I could get a real job. Uh, they'll be so much better when I graduate from seminary. Uh, they'll be so much better when I finally get through this next parenting crisis. No. Things are going to be so much better when I treasure Christ as he deserves to be treasured. Things are going to be so much better when I can just feast upon the God who is with me 24 hours a day. That is when I'm going to be most joyful. That is going to be when life is at its best. My friends, what are your what-ifs this morning? Where do you find yourself running during those troubled times? Flee from those. Free, flee from those false dreams that will never bring you the satisfaction that your heart desires. Feast upon Christ. Treasure him this morning. God is with you. 
Don't you dare take that for granted. Now, as I start to wrap up, I want to take us a little bit further in the Bible storyline. Because you see, this theme of God with us doesn't stop with Jesus coming to the earth. Jesus did come. He was God with us in the flesh, but then he ascended. But he didn't leave us or forsake us. He sent another comforter. One of the most wonderful things from John, uh, the, the preaching through John's gospel has been this focus in the last couple of weeks on the Holy Spirit. God is not just with us. He is in us. And if, if the disciples had something wonderful by standing next to Jesus and, and putting their arms around him, now the creator of the universe is inside you and me. I wish I had time to dwell on how remarkable that is. But let that restore some wonder in you. Amen? But it goes still further. There is hope for this dark world that is out there. Because now, God with us? Well, that's us, my friends. John 20, 21, Christ looks at his disciples post-resurrection and he says... Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so now, bearing the Holy Spirit, we are the bearers of Christ into the world. We are to make God incarnate to those who don't know him. Just as we read that Jesus is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We are to bring that wonderful Counselor to the people that we work with and live with. We are to introduce the peace, the shalom of God into their lives. This isn't some drive-by preaching. We're, we're talking about deep investment in the lives of people that do not know him. Can I just challenge you for a moment? How are you incarnating Christ right now? What, what picture of God are your children seeing through you? What about the people at your work? Are you bringing the incarnate Christ into their lives? Maybe this holiday season, there's somebody that you can invite to your holiday table that you can share this wonder that God has come down and he is with us. One final stop as we close. You may have noticed that I didn't preach through the entirety of that Isaiah chapter 9 passage. We left out verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I don't know if you follow the news very closely, but what I see right now in the world is a far cry from peace without end. The justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore, where is that in Syria right now? 
Where is that in North Korea? No, this is still to come. Yes, Christ's kingdom has been established here on earth, and it will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow, but it's not yet completed. God is with us, but what we now see as through shadowed glass, then we will see face to face. When Christ comes, we are awaiting a day when the kingdom of God will stretch without end, where the entire earth will be covered with his shalom. I want to read you just a couple of verses from one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Listen to this picture of God with us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The promise of God with us is that as we struggle through this world that still has much darkness, still has much anguish, we have the promise that one day God will be with us to wipe the last tears from our eyes. That he will banish death and mourning and sickness and sadness forever. And then we will know our Jesus face to face. We, we won't dream of treasuring anything else because we will see so clearly what is most beautiful in this world. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Christmas, the good news of this passage from Isaiah is God is with us. He has given us everything that we could ever need. He's given us himself. So in this Christmas season, I urge you, I beg you, do not get caught up in the details. Don't think about the perfect presence. Don't think about making that holiday meal or the holiday decorations just right. Instead, ask yourself, am I experiencing the wonder that God is with me? Are you treasuring Christ for who he is this Christmas? If you're not, I just want to suggest a couple of things to you. First of all, remember the gospel. We are not in gloom. We are not in anguish. We are not in darkness because he took it upon himself. Secondly, 
memorize scripture that speaks to the treasure that we have in Christ. All week, Psalm 73, 20, see, 24 and 25 have been running through my mind. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Every time you find yourself treasuring something else, run back to that truth. And can I say, if you're here today, and all of this talk about treasuring God just sounds foreign to you, please come forward after the service. Talk to myself or talk to one of the elders. We'll be up here. We want to explain to you why Jesus is the greatest treasure you can ever imagine. Well, what to say, my friends? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that though we justly have walked under your judgment, though we justly have been in darkness, the light of the world has shone among us. You yourself came down. You yourself took on flesh, took our place under judgment, and have given us life. Even more, you have given us yourself. Jesus, thank you. Help us now, Lord, to treasure God with us. Help us to treasure you as you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.